Well, greetings and welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're here. And today we're going to do something that's kind of special. We're going to take a look at Dan Barker. Uh, the reason that's special to me is a lot of the people that I've been responding to uh, over these response videos since I've been doing them have been people that uh, I wasn't aware of 10 years ago uh, that weren't around whenever I was getting into apologetics and kind of studying philosophy and religion and figuring out what people have to say back and forth. But Dan Barker was. Dan Barker's been around for a while. And so uh, one of the things that I like about him is he's debated a lot of the you know big names out there and, and uh, has some real credibility. And a lot of the talking points that I hear internet atheists using today uh, came from people like Dan Barker. In fact, we'll hear at least one of those in this video today. Now, I've only watched this video one time, and uh, so this is his opening statements, part of his opening statements from a uh, debate some, with somebody, I'm not sure who exactly, but I will, um, I, I'll put the link to the original video where I got the video uh, in the description, so you can check that out. Uh, but uh, Dan Barker, uh, I'd like to debate Dan Barker one day. Perhaps that will materialize. Uh, he's debated my friend Nick Peters. He's debated my friend Mike Lycona. Uh, and so I, I think that'd be pretty fun. It'd be interesting considering he was, again, one of the people that was around when I was coming up. So uh, we're going to not spend too much time. By the way, I, I think he's got a likable personality. And Dan Barker, if you see this, I don't know if you will, but if you see this, I, there's something about you. you know, other Christians don't understand why I say this, and atheists have said, oh, I don't get where you're saying that, but people like Matt Dillahunty, people like uh, Christopher Hitchens, people like Dan Barker, uh, even though they could come off as really abrasive and really snarky and, and say some things that strike uh, you know Christian hearers as really blasphemous and things like that, I can still appreciate them for their use of rhetoric, and I can still appreciate the, you know, the, the clever turn of phrase, and just kind of as people, I can tell I like them just as an individual. And I feel that way about Ann Barker. I, I think I like this guy as far as uh, a human being goes and as far as wit and rhetoricism. However, um, we're going to critique what he has to say here and give a response. And so without further ado, we'll jump. Yeah. We'll jump right into it. The reason I am a non-believer today is because of the lack of evidence and argument for a deity. If there were any real evidence for a God, here it comes. Then by now, someone should have won the Nobel Prize for pointing that out. Any uh, wait, wait, here we go. Scientists in the world would jump at the chance to say, "Here we go." I mean, if there is a hitherto unknown force of the cosmos that we haven't yet been able to determine, what scientists in the world would not love to make that point? That okay, now, now notice something. This is key, and this kind of stands or, or undergirds what we hear all the time from Internet atheists. It's like, um, who would love to know about it? Who would love to know if there was a God? Scientists. Why is he honing in on scientists? Well, because they're the ones who would have made the discovery. Wouldn't any scientist love to be the one who determines that there is a God? But one thing that we need to keep in mind here is that this is not merely a scientific question. Um, science studies the physical universe. And so if a god stands as the creator of the physical universe, you might find hints toward it, say like in design arguments or teleological arguments, people will point out it seems like there's an intelligent designer behind this. You may find evidence of that, and I think we see plenty of evidence of that. But to get to the god himself, you wouldn't be able to do that with natural sciences because it's a category error. That's not where you would expect to find that. Now, you could find some more information about what this cause must be like, and you would use philosophy for that. If this God ever came to Earth as a human being, if this God ever interacted in some sort of social way, 
uh, and communicated with with people, uh, you know, face to face, well, then we could have historical information for that. And so that's why Christian apologists will use philosophical arguments and historical arguments, and some people that will uh, marshal design arguments will use a bit of science, but. Um, the philosophical and the historical are almost cut off as though they're unimportant in discussions like this. And some atheists will come right out and say that, and it just it just blows my mind. How, why? Why is it that we have to so dogmatically insist that the lab coat priesthood, uh, that that's who's going to give us the information if there is any about God, and if they haven't found it, well, then we have no reason to believe that there is a God. This is, I mean, talk about wanting to be a free thinker. I think a free thinker would say, no, I'm going to incorporate all areas of intellectual inquiry to try and find the answer to this question. And if you do that, I think there's plenty of good evidence for God. Uh, but let's keep going. That hasn't been done yet. All we have are what we would call, and I think many believers call, God of the gap. The thunder and lightning was a gap that is now closed. The perhaps fine-tuning of the initial constants, perhaps the origin of the Big Bang, we do have some gaps in science. In fact, it is those gaps that drive science. Without those gaps, we wouldn't have scientific inquiry. What we are offered with is faith and belief. And you were... Well, I think he's going to loop back around to talking about um, the God of the gaps. But for those that may not know, because I don't want to take it for granted that people that watch these response videos are aware of all these things, but a God of the gaps argument, is, what he means by that is something like, well, uh, we don't know how to explain some particular phenomenon that at least currently seems mysterious. We don't have an answer for it. And so we plug God in there. And uh, maybe it makes more sense to the people that do the God of the gaps because uh, whatever is being, whatever is happening seems godlike, you know, like uh, the beginning of the universe or uh, lightning or something like that. It seems really powerful and amazing and, and uh, we don't know what causes it. So God must be the explanation. Um, that's a God of the gaps. Now, the interesting thing is, I, I don't know what the Christian argued in this video, but I can, if this is a Christian, uh, but I can tell you this, that the arguments that he's going to respond to and the arguments that are often presented by classical apologists are not God of the gaps arguments. Uh, say, for example, the Kalam cosmological argument that I talk a lot about. It is not a God of the gaps argument. A God of the gaps argument says we don't know what the cause is, therefore God. And a lot of atheists present it that way when they're trying to respond to it, they'll say something like, well, you know, you, I mean, everybody from Matt Dillahunty to uh, Paul Ogia to several others will say things like, look, you've got the Kalam argument, everything that begins to exist must have a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause. And then you just jump to this spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful personal agent that serves as the cause without, you know, and, and that's, it's just a leap in logic. No, it's not a leap in logic. What we do is we give good reasons to determine what the, uh, we do a conceptual analysis of what would have to be true of the first cause. We're not taking a leap in logic. We're saying because of certain things, it would have, the cause would have these things that are true about it. For instance, if it's the cause of space, then it, then it must be spaceless because things can't cause themselves to come into existence. If it's the cause of all physical matter, then it must not be material because things can't cause themselves to come into existence. And the same must be true of time. If it created time, then it must exist timelessly. So you have a you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material something. Uh, beyond that, it would have to uh, it would have to be personal. It would have to have a mind uh, for several reasons. But I'll just jump to one that's going to be most relevant to this video, and that is that uh, there existed no prior determinism uh, because in a state of timeless nothingness, there could not have been a prior. There could be no determinism to work on this cause, and so from a state of timeless nothingness, uh, the cause would have to have what we call libertarian freedom. And what sort of things have libertarian freedom? 
uh, personal agents do. And so, for, and, and it would have to be sufficiently powerful in order to bring the universe into existence. Now, notice I'm not saying all powerful or anything like that. I'm saying it would have to be sufficiently powerful to do something like uh, bring the universe into existence. If it's not sufficiently powerful, then it can't be the cause of the universe's coming into existence, you see. So, these, so we're not leaping to these things. We're actually giving the good reasons why we believe that that's true. So it's not a god of the gaps. Likewise, the um, design arguments that you might hear are not god of the gaps. So uh, the fine-tuning of the universe is due either to chance, physical necessity, or intelligent design. Uh, you can take a look at that and see what else is even possible to be an explanation. It's either chance, physical necessity, or intelligent design. And then we reason that it, it's not chance. It's very implausible to think that it's chance. Um, it's not physical necessity because even people like uh, PCW Davies will say that the universe didn't have to be the way that it was and we can run simulations and look at other models and see how it could have been otherwise and what it would have been like if it had been otherwise and so you don't have chance you don't have physical necessity so what's left intelligent design so we and of course we can we can recognize design in various ways so the point is these are not God of the gaps arguments these are these are arguments in which we're giving the good reasons why positive reasons to believe that uh, an intelligent personal creator serves as the best cause. The same could be said about the moral argument and, and other things. So this God of the gaps is a bumper sticker that atheists use, but um, I would like to recommend that atheists out there who are perhaps listening to the response videos that I'm making and you think, hey, I'd like to start a YouTube channel and maybe I'd like to do response videos to Christians. What I would do if I were in your case um, in your situation is I would look at the things that you notice that the vast majority of atheists do um, that may be a lot of chest thumping type things, bumper sticker, platitudes, and then say, okay, how is there really, like people like me that you're listening to, do they give good reasons to think that those are just bumper stickers? And if so, don't use those things. It only makes your case weaker if you use platitudes that don't have any real foundation for them. If what you're saying has a real, and I see it all the time in the YouTube comments, I'm sure there will be for this video, but if what you're saying has good substance to it and doesn't rely on these platitudes and cliches, and things that I refer to as chest thumping. Uh, then, you, it, oh, and another thing, if you're actually a nice person, if you, if you point out you know, what, what you agree with, when you agree, and things like that, well, then you're going to find yourself getting much more traction with believers. Of course, I believe that if you get away from the platitudes and the bumper stickers and those sorts of things, it's much more likely that you're going to come to see that Christianity uh, is the best explanation of the nature of reality. Let's continue. You were very eloquent in saying that you have a belief in a God, that what you believe is God. But belief is not knowledge. Belief is simply an assertion. According to the Bible that you believers believe, belief is the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. Belief is not evidence. Anytime you have to accept an assertion by faith, you're admitting that that assertion cannot be accepted on its own merits. Okay. Um, in the past, I've given uh, a better reading of... Uh, the passage that he's referring to and also pointing out that the, the word that is translated faith is the word pistis and it means a trust or conviction and you can have that uh, on the basis of evidence so i have pistis or trust that when i sit in this chair that it's going to hold me it doesn't mean that i don't have any evidence for it it means that um, i'm trusting that based on what's happened in the past uh, that what's going to happen in the future is is you know that i can predict that and that i'm going to be all right um, i'm exercising pistis um, and of course, I'll get to more of this in just a moment, but with persons, we trust them that they're going to function 
in certain ways in the future based on what we have good evidence that they've done in the past. So again, this is just a proffering of an unbiblical understanding of faith. Now, what I've heard recently, ever since the R.N. Raw versus Michael Jones debate, because people want to defend R.N. Raw there, uh, what I've heard people saying is, well, uh, so what? That's how a lot of religious people use it. Okay, fine. A lot of religious people use it that way. Big deal. What we're talking about is what does the Bible mean when it uses the word faith? when it uses the word pistis, and it's not at all what Dan Barker's talking about, and if he's not talking about what the Bible's talking about, then don't talk about the Bible when you're talking about this. It doesn't have the strength to be accepted as any other, perhaps, scientific hypothesis would be taken. Do scientists gather together every Sunday morning in their scientific sanctuaries and bow their heads and sing, yes, the Higgs boson is real. <laughs> I know in my heart the Higgs boson is real. I will have faith. I will be strong to this secular world who challenges my belief that the God particle is real. Amen. <laughs> if, if they did such a thing, you would think they were pretty insecure on the concept, wouldn't you? And that's what we find with faith, a constant puffing yourself up, be strong, resist the world, believe in these absurdities in spite of the doubts. Okay, uh, so let, this is another bumper sticker that gets passed around. Now, uh, you know, it's not really his fault because he created a lot of these bumper stickers. So you can't very well blame the bumper sticker manufacturer that everybody else takes it and runs with it and acts like it's some sort of an argument. Uh, but here's what I want to say about this. So the Higgs boson, uh, it, it is true that in church we say things like we, we believe in you, God. We, we, um, we, we worship you. We, we uh, place our faith in you, these sorts of things. Um, and it is true that scientists don't do that with something like the Higgs boson. Does, is that because Christians are not sure about God's existence and they're trying to convince themselves of that? Well, maybe in some cases. I mean, I want to be frank about this, maybe. But the reality is that the difference is not so much that in one case you're talking about something that you really do know is real, and in another case you're talking about something that you don't know for sure whether it's real. What the difference is, is you're talking about a personal agent versus a physical object. And that is the point. Let me give you an example of why that's the point. So um, think about what we say in church to God. Uh, I, I believe in you, God. I have faith in you, God. I know that blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, are those the kind of things that we would say to other personal agents? Sure, we don't say it to the Higgs boson. But again, this is just another category error. This is becoming a theme in this video. With persons, we do talk that way. Persons that we very well know are real. So when I propose to my wife, yes. When I proposed to my wife, I played her a song on guitar, and you'll never get it out of me what it is. But I played a song on guitar, and before I proposed to my wife, it was really fun and uh, enjoyable, and it's a great memory for me. And in that song, there were things very much like that. I, I believe in you. I believe in our love. I, I, I place my faith in, in you. I place my faith in uh, our love, and things like that. Okay, you're already Googling song lyrics to try to figure out what I sang to my wife. But the fact of the matter is, uh, there's my there's my T-shirt. Uh, somebody needs to make a T-shirt. The fact of the matter is, um, it's not that I didn't believe that my wife existed, and it's not that I didn't believe that I didn't have good reason to believe in our love. Uh, it's just that when you're talking to persons, what are you conveying with this pistis? What are you conveying with this faith or this belief or with speaking this way, like we the same as we do in a worshipful atmosphere in church, singing hymns or worship songs? Is you're conveying to them that I trust you, I, I believe in what is going on between you and I. Not on the basis of no evidence. Obviously, if I was proposing to my wife, I had really good evidence that uh, I could trust her going forward on the basis of what had happened in the past. I, I placed my trust 
in her that based on what I've seen, we're going to be a good match and that she's going to remain faithful to me and that we're going to have a strong relationship. Uh, but these are the same sorts of terms that we use in church, right? So do we use that sort of language about other physical objects? Well, not usually. I mean, I could say, like I did just a moment ago, I put my trust and faith in this chair that it's going to hold me when I sit down. But we don't typically talk that way in those kind of emotionally uh, charged words about physical objects. We, we place those, we use those words with persons. And isn't it interesting The Higgs boson is not a person, but God is a person. And so we talk to him that way. So actually the difference is not that we don't have good confidence that God exists and we're trying to drum it up in ourselves. Uh, it's actually instead just that we're talking to a person and that's how persons who have strong feelings toward one another talk. I mean, you know, uh, did you never talk that way to your wife, Dan Barker? I mean, come on, man. Uh, be a little more romantic with things. Let's keep going. The uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the absolute worst example anyone could possibly give for the reliability of the Bible. And I'm not exaggerating. Let me tell you why I'm not exaggerating. Many stories in the Bible are given once or twice. The resurrection story is given five times. You can compare them. Scholars have never been able to reconcile those contradictory accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. And besides that, and there are many of them, was the tomb open or closed when the women arrived? What message did the angels give? How many angels were at the tomb? And so on. Dare I say, it depends which gospel you read. Uh, besides that, we see through the development in the first century of the Christian myth that the earliest stories were simple. There were no angels. There were, there were very few remarkable events. But as you go 10, 20, 30 years later, you find more and more until you get to the book of John where you find these outlandish stories what you see in the development of the resurrection story in the New Testament is the development of a legend. Starting simple, growing over time, getting more and more fantastic. It's a mistake to treat those accounts as if they were flat, as if they all happened at one time. We can see before our eyes the development from a simple, unvarnished, perhaps some element of truth in some story about someone who may have spiritually ascended, like we say grandma died and went to heaven. Maybe the early apostles said Jesus died and went to heaven, but that exaggerated. So the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, okay, okay. Let's let's talk about some of this stuff. First of all, if you want to hear uh, my explanation, I'll summarize it here. But I'm going to link uh, my video about Bart Ehrman or response to Bart Ehrman, where I cover this very issue. But uh, we, you know, we have the, the majority of scholars believe that uh, the Gospels are in the genre of Greco-Roman biography or uh, something that shares great affinities with. Uh, Greco-Roman biography. And so if you understand something about the literary conventions of Greco-Roman biography, you understand that they have literary devices and conventions that allow them to um, to tell the story in a way that makes the point that they want to make um, as they're talking, as they're telling the history of this particular person. And so there may be relevant differences based on what the author is trying to communicate about the person that they're talking to. And just as I said before, it's it's not, if, you, if you're out there and you're a Christian and you're saying, well, are you telling me that I can't believe that what the Bible is giving me is history. No, you can believe that what the Bible is giving you history, but you have to understand that people have written history in different ways, in different cultures, throughout the history of the world. And if you try and force 21st century biographical historical conventions onto first century Palestinian ones, then you're going to run into problems. In fact, you may end up doing damage to the meaning of the text. But if you actually do good hermeneutics and a good socio-historical study, and you try to see how did people at the time 
write biographies than uh, in Greco-Roman biography. And, and if I apply those conventions, well, then a lot of these things that are, in fact, differences, uh, don't, uh, they're not contradictions. The, the tension there just evaporates because you see, oh, okay, I see how people wrote back then. And this actually accounts for most of these. It doesn't account for all of them. And the ones that it doesn't account for, uh, for the most part, I think, can be handled by uh, doing good harmonizations. You know, he said scholars have never been able to square these things with one another. Well, it depends on what you mean by scholars, and it depends on what you mean by uh, fitting them together with one another. The fact is, I mentioned before that the late, great Norman Geisler actually released a book on uh, uh, differences or uh, supposed contradictions in the Bible in which he gave uh, harmonization treatments to this. And harmonization has almost become a bad word, uh, even among Christian circles. But the fact is, if there is a harmony, then a harmonization does exist. And it's perfectly reasonable to, because, see, here's the thing. Um, let, let's go back to something you said about science just a few moments ago. He says, well, you know, the thing that drives science is that they don't have answers to certain questions of cosmology and biology and these sorts of things. What some have said is if we were to take the God, take God as the answer and the supernatural as the answer, oh, well, then science would just end and we just say, well, we already know the answer and we wouldn't go any further and we wouldn't have this uh, ongoing exploration. Well, that's simply false. Methodological naturalism could still exist in the sciences. That is to say that they're not presuming metaphysical naturalism. They're not presuming that it is the case that uh, God does not exist and nature is all there is and that sort of thing. But what they would do is, for their work, they would say, I'm excluding supernatural explanations for this. I'm only going to consider naturalistic explanations. That's perfectly fine. And the journey that you're on in cosmology and such can continue. Christians aren't scared of that. We think that it's always going to be consistent with, uh, with Christianity and Christian theism and how we conceive of God. Um, and in the same way, if you looked at the Bible and even as an atheist said, okay, maybe I, maybe I don't believe in uh, inerrancy, maybe I don't believe that there's a consistency here, but I'm going to take methodological consistency, right? Uh, just like the scientist who may believe in God, but he's going to take methodological naturalism, you're going to take methodological consistency, or dare I say methodological inerrancy. And I'm going to see if, is there a way to square these things with each other? Well, guess what? Oftentimes, you'll, you'll find, I think in every case that requires harmonization, you're going to find that there is a harmony there. And it's not a forcing of a puzzle piece, like where it doesn't belong in a puzzle. It fits in the way that it should, I think. Um, and so, uh, but, but, you, you, but if you just say, ah, I'm not going to bother with that because after all, Dan Barker's telling me that there's uh, contradictions. And I've heard people talk about things that seem like contradictions. And so, I'm sorry, there's a couple of things you need to do. Number one, you need to look at the literary conventions at the time. And secondly, you also need to um, take a look at good works that do try to harmonize these things and see if they're compelling to you. I have great confidence that if you take both of these, those things on board, you're going to find that there simply isn't a problem. Let's move on. Jesus Christ is not evidence for a God. And even then, it would just be evidence that a man rose from the dead. How do you connect the dots? Oh, that would be great if, if people were willing to admit that... Um, that uh, God, that Jesus did rise from the dead. Like he says, well, then you just have a man risen from the dead, but then how do you connect the dots? Well, actually it's, it's, it's uh, great that he says that because, hold on just a second, I'm back. Um, if you take that, uh, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, what's the best explanation for that? Well, there's one built into Jesus' uh, discussion of who he was already. 
the vast majority of scholars believe that Jesus thought of himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom. Uh, Mike, uh, let's see, William Lane Craig says, when Jewish scholars do consider the personal claims or self-understanding of Jesus, the majority conclude that Jesus did believe himself to be the Messiah, though, of course, they considered him to have been tragically deluded in this opinion. So Jewish scholars who are not Christians would agree that Jesus thought of himself uh, as the Messiah. Mike Lycona says that Jesus viewed himself as God's eschatological agent. Uh, the figure through whom the kingdom of God was coming is also widely recognized by biblical scholars and amply attested in the sources. Um, and by the way, I consulted Mike, who's a close friend and uh, one of the top three resurrection scholars on the planet, and he assured me that there is almost universal consensus on this among critical scholars. Um, and you get it from passages like Matthew 12, 28, Luke 11, 20, uh, things like, um, if by the Spirit of God I am casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Um, yeah, uh, Meyer points out that Jesus' preaching uh, of the kingdom is found in Mark. The Q material, the immaterial, and directly in L and John appears in multiple literary forms like prayer, eschatological sayings, and beatitudes. I like how James D.G. Dunn puts it as he's talking about the Son of Man. Uh, well, I'll quote him in a moment, but there's a lot we could say about the honorific titles Jesus used. But Son of Man was his favorite, and it is used 80 times in the Gospels and only once outside the Gospels uh, in the New Testament, meaning that it was not some title placed by later believers onto Jesus' lips. James D.G. Dunn says, Quote, when we encounter a thoroughly consistent and distinctive feature, a tradition which depicts Jesus regularly using the phrase Son of Man and virtually no other use of the phrase, it simply beggars scholarship to deny that this feature stemmed from a remembered speech usage of Jesus himself. Um, it, now, uh, what's important about this Son of Man stuff? Well, um, everyone standing around, Listening to Jesus call himself the Son of Man would understand he was referring to Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which is clearly talking about a special messianic agent of God bringing about the kingdom. So when we consider the fact that, so if you were to willing to grant that Jesus rose from the dead, because I hear this all the time uh, from, well, that's not true. I hear it occasionally from skeptics. Like, what if, what if we did come to believe that Jesus really did raise from the dead? Well, then we would say, okay, he rose from the dead, but what's the explanation for that? Well, this goes back to my recalibrated plausibility, but the fact of the matter is, if Jesus during his life was saying that he was a part of God's special program, that he was He was the one going to bring about the kingdom, as if he's carrying around a sign saying, just watch my life and see what happens, and then a bunch of people claim that he rose from the dead, the best explanation is that what he said was going to happen, there's a predictive power there, you see. What he said was going to happen seems to be something like what happened. Uh, especially when you consider uh, God as a force that would be capable of doing something like a resurrection. Of course, by that point in the presentation, I would have already given you other theistic arguments to show that God does, in fact, exist. So, uh, like the ones that Dan Barker here says are God of the gaps and are clearly not God of the gaps. So, let's continue. We suffer also from a coherent definition of a God. We have a proposition. This house believes in God. What is that? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, he said a moment ago that uh, perhaps he had something like, well... Jesus went home to be with the Father or something, and then people just took that and ran with it, and you had this legendary uh, development in this building and all, all these sorts of things. Well, remember again from uh, previous videos that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, we have an early creedal statement that goes back to uh, within five years 
of the events of the resurrection. Now, uh, Pine Creek recently called me out and said, well, so what? Just because it shows that he said he made up some other, I forget what it was, but some other mythological thing that we can imagine. What if he did have reports from within five years? Does that mean that the thing happened? No, it doesn't. But what it does show, if you point at the reason we point this out is because you have people like Dan Barker and Bart Ehrman and other people running around pointing out how this legendary development built up over decades and decades. Well, not if you can show that people within the first five years were saying that Jesus was dead, buried, and rose again. That cuts that out from under you almost completely, if not completely, because it, it shows that. Uh, secondly, if you were to say something like, well, they just built on the idea that, that Jesus went home to be with the Father, just like we might say about our grandmother, she went home to, home to be with God or be with Jesus or whatever. That wouldn't explain something like Paul's conversion. It wouldn't explain the conversion of James. It wouldn't explain some of these other elements in the story, the empty tomb, these other uh, things that are highly uh, evidenced and believed by the majority of scholars. Um, so you wouldn't have an explanation for that. Another thing that would be pointed out is some people like Robert Price will, will try to say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, later on in the chapter, what you get are these uh, spiritualizations. And I like to do a whole video about that, 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 what you, that what was raised was not physical and that Paul seems to think that. Paul doesn't think that. Um, uh, and we'll do a whole video on that at some point. But one thing that we can say is in that same chapter where he thinks he gets his support for that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, it says that he was dead, buried, and rose again. I like what N.T. Wright has to say about that, and that is that um, to say that he was dead, buried, obviously his physical body, dead, buried, and rose again, no more needs, uh, you know, no more need to specify that his body was raised than you would need to specify someone walked down the street by saying, on their feet. Um, it's, it contextually seems clear and also makes the best sense of what uh, the people would have thought about um, someone like Jesus rising from the dead. So um, that's uh, all important to mention. So this idea that, well, it just developed over legend. He's got to work against 1 Corinthians 15. He's got to work against uh, the, the, the things like Paul's conversion and James' conversion and the empty tomb and those sorts of things. He's got to work against all of that. And he's, he's uh, got to, he has so he's, he's got all of the historical evidence against him. And by the way, uh, the Gospels do count as historical data. Uh, any good researcher knows that you want to get to the primary sources as best that you can. So you can't just write them off and say, well, these are religious documents or religious propaganda. No, no, no. These are the best sources for the life of Jesus and the growth of the early church, the Gospels and uh, the rest of the New Testament. So, uh, you know, you've got to take this into consideration, which means that all of the historical evidence works against someone like Dan Barker and none of the historical evidence supports him, especially when we know that the only thing he can use is what's in 1 Corinthians 15. And within 1 Corinthians 15, as I said, we have evidence for a bodily resurrection. So uh, I'm sorry, this stuff just doesn't fly. And this is one of the reasons why many people are today saying, don't try to come up with some sort of an alternative hypothesis for the resurrection because the Christian apologist will shred it. They don't say it that way, but that's actually what's going on because every time a skeptic tries to do that, it gets shredded by Christian apologists because none of it fits the historical bedrock facts. A word. What does that word God mean? There are many, and I don't have time to go into much detail, but there are many incompatible properties that many theists assign to this deity, much like saying uh, this deity is a married bachelor. Can a married bachelor exist? Logically, it cannot. And there are mutually incompatible properties. 
characteristics of this deity that many theists have put forward that may... Uh, by the way, um, we, we know that because of good philosophy, that a Mary Bachelor can't exist. It's not because we scientifically studied every inch of the cosmos and came to the conclusion that no, um, Mary Bachelors exist. We know that because logic tells us that. Get a married bachelor. For example, God is supposedly an omniscient being who has free will. But if you know the future, you can't have free will. I'm not talking about human free will, and that's a big debate whether we have it or not. Even atheists agree among, disagree among themselves. But God, presumably, this being is a personal being with free will who knows his own future decisions. In order to have free will, whatever that means, there has to be a period of indeterminacy during which you truly do have options. I could choose coffee or tea. I could choose this or that. But if you know your future options, you have no choice. You have no freedom. You are not a free uh, personal agency. So if your definition of God is that God is omniscient and free, he cannot exist. He's a married bachelor. I know theologians try to take with definitions. Uh, by the way, if God cannot change what he knows he's going to do tomorrow at 12 noon, that also puts some limits on his omnipotence, doesn't it? Okay, uh, so with this, what we want to point out is not a misunderstanding of the uh, definition of God, but a definite, the definition of freedom. Also, guess what? Another category error. What's the category error? Well, this is one of the most common category errors that I deal with, and that is um, that the, the mistake of thinking that knowledge is somehow causal. Uh, knowledge is not causal. So now he was careful. Not he was careful not to say that God's knowledge of your free actions means that your actions aren't free. That would be the clearest example of uh, the category error. Uh, that if God knows what you're going to do, then you have to do that, and you can't do otherwise. So, no, no, no. Knowledge is not causal. That is simply a category error. It came up. Uh, during the Q&A time with the audience in my debate with Matt Dillahunty. It's come up in theological debates that I've had. It comes up quite often, but you're just, anyone who thinks that is simply incorrect. It's just a category error. But guess what? Knowledge isn't causal even when it comes to God. That God knows what he's going to do doesn't mean that he's not free to determine what he wants to do. And this is partly because, as I've pointed out in many other videos, uh, the definition of libertarian freedom. So we've got libertarian freedom, we've got determinism, and some people think there's a middle of the road called compatibilism. I'm not going to spend any time on that. It's not a middle of the road. It's a terminological distinction. You have libertarian freedom or determinism. Determinism says no real free will actually exists in, in the way that people mean it. Um, libertarian freedom says you actually are free. Now, but what do we mean? What does it mean for something to have libertarian freedom? Well, for someone to have libertarian freedom, uh, it, it means principally that they are the determiner of their actions, that nothing outside of them determined what they would do. And, uh, and, and then in most cases, we can imagine that it means you have the ability to choose among options, that um, you can choose A or B, and you really could, and whatever you end up doing, you could have done otherwise. Uh, but that explanation is the only one that apparently has any purchase on Dan Barker. And most of the atheists that I encounter is they think that libertarian freedom always and simply and only means that you have the ability to choose among options. And if we ran the tape back, you could have done otherwise. But what is necessary and sufficient for libertarian freedom is that nothing outside of you determined your actions, that they were self-determined. Now, when we consider God uh, being that exists spacelessly and timelessly, it's simply not possible that anything else determined God's actions. And so even if I were to grant what Dan Barker is trying to say, 
which is that God didn't have the principle of alternative possibility um, that that he uh, that he could have done otherwise. Um, it, 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 it doesn't mean that he wasn't libertarianly free. He was libertarianly free in the sense that nothing outside of him or external to him determined his actions. So does God have libertarian freedom? He most certainly does. Um, however, let me say this. If God didn't have libertarian freedom, but we do, would that cause a problem? Now, that would be an interesting discussion in-house among theologians, and I have discussed it with others at great length of time. I'm happy to tell you this, that when I had a poorer definition of libertarian freedom, I didn't really talk about it too much, but I internally believed that we do have libertarian freedom and God did not. Many Calvinists today don't believe that God has libertarian freedom because they don't believe that libertarian freedom is a thing, just like atheistic determinists don't believe that libertarian freedom is a thing. However, uh, understanding libertarian freedom properly, I do believe God has libertarian freedom, but if he didn't, would it mean that Christianity is false? No, it simply wouldn't. And when, as I've said many times, if you can say, so what, to an argument that someone brings, then it's not a very powerful argument. So, so what? A lot of these arguments from uh, design and teleology, for example, suffer from begging the question. It's rather like the man who is amazed. Look at how all these rivers were made to flow right along the state boundaries. <laughs> That's funny. How do you explain that? It must have been a massive feat of engineering, a huge economic development. How did they get those rivers to do that? Isn't that incredible? And yet that's how a lot of this teleological thinking is among how did the human eye evolve? How, did the, how do you explain that? There must have been design behind it. It does look like design, doesn't it? Those rivers look like they were designed to flow right along those boundaries. It's an upside down kind of thinking and in, in a sense begs the question. The, the whole idea that uh, in some of these teleological arguments that complexity requires a designer and uh, Richard somewhere here pointed out in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, anything that is complex enough to design functional complexity, any, any deity who could, could design has to have a mind that is at least as functionally complex as the thing that he designed, right? If your premise is that functional complexity requires a designer, if that's your premise, then the mind of that deity also must, by that premise, require a designer. And you get into this infinite regressive, well, then God needed a bigger God and a bigger God. I think most scientists prefer to just stop with what we do know rather than speculate endlessly about a, a mountain of turtles. <laughs> Another... Okay, let's stop right there for a minute. So uh, what do you said here with the uh, rivers going along the state lines? Obviously, we know the state lines were often drawn according to those rivers. Uh, but this is a variation of the old, uh, you know, I forget the name of the guy who came up with this originally, but you have a puddle of water and it looks like the water the if the water could think the water could say oh my gosh this this uh you know this pothole is so perfectly designed to match my parameters i mean i reach into every nook and cranny it i was you know it's clearly was designed for me to be here because it fits me uh when in reality no the water just formed to the uh, shape of the pothole. And so uh, the atheist wants to say, the naturalist wants to say, in the same way, you, it's, not, it's not that the universe was created so that something like life could be possible and the complexity of life that we see in something like the human eye or the human being or the human brain. But in reality, what's going on is uh, 
you know, life sort of evolved to fit the parameters that it's in, which is the physical universe, just like you would have with uh, water in the pothole. But there's a very simple explanation. This is a very truncated explanation. He, he really needs to do a lot more work. And, and I'll give him a break. This is the opening statements of a debate, I think. And so for that reason, he can't perhaps go into too much detail. Uh, I always have people telling me about my debates. Well, you should have gone into more detail about this or that or the other thing. Well, you, you get 20 minutes or whatever. You just don't have a lot of time. So we'll give him a break there. But the reality is, uh, if, is that um, not every or every pothole can hold water that matches its parameters. Not every universe could uh, could have life. How do we know that? We can run simulations on the universe, and we can run simulations on what would have to be true of a universe for life to form, and not every way the universe could have been could have had life. We are in a very, very specified condition. There is specified complexity. We are in a very unique situation for life uh, to emerge. And uh, go back to, uh, maybe I'll link it in this video, to the Jacqueline Glenn episode I gave some of those um, that come from physicists about uh, some of the striking features. And so you might go back and, and check that out. But this is a very truncated, and again, what do we have? A bumper sticker, sort of cliche explanation, uh, or response to a design argument. And, um, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just not good enough. You need to do better. Another lack that uh, takes against the evidence for existence of a God. Oh, wait a minute. What about God needing to be as complex, uh, more complex than the thing that's being designed? Uh, now, some people who aren't familiar with this discussion might say, well, yeah, I mean, it's God. He's obviously going to be incredibly complex and all those sorts of things. And we could talk about uh, simplicity and cognitive simplicity and all these kind of things, all that all night. But what we can simply say here is um, that God would need a designer you know, whatever God is, whatever makes up, however we can imagine God, whether you think that there's complexity there or simplicity, or however you want to define that or describe that, um, God doesn't need a creator or a beginner, not because of, it has nothing to do with how complex or simple you think God is. It has to do with God's timelessness. And because of God's timelessness, the only thing that need beginnings or endings are things that are in time. Now you might say, well, yeah, but God is infinite. Well, in some respects, but when we're talking about temporality, God is not infinite temporally. <laughs> that may sound blasphemous to some of you, but the fact of the matter is, if God exists timelessly, uh, then to, to exist infinitely into the past would be temporal language. God does not exist temporally into the past. God exists timelessly with no beginning and no ending. And the only things that need causes or creators or designers are those things that exist in time. God exists timelessly and needs no beginning, has no beginning, needs no end. Um, uh, now, uh, God, the Bible describes God as from everlasting to everlasting, and that, that language still works because um, what is from everlasting to everlasting? As far back as you want to go, in time, God exists, right? He exists timelessly, but he also exists as far back in time as you can go. He will exist as far forward in time as you want to go. So from everlasting to everlasting works, and timeless works. And so this simply falls all over itself. God is the lack of agreement among believers. If there is a deity that you love and care about, why do no two believers agree on any social or moral issue? You name it. Gay marriage, doctor-assisted suicide, stem cell research, death, uh, the war, you name these social issues we're struggling with. You find devout, praying, Bible-believing Christians on both sides of those issues. Paul wrote in the Bible, God is not the author of confusion. But can you think of a single book that's caused more confusion than that Bible? 
they don't agree. Why, why not? Why shouldn't it be clear? Why shouldn't this all-loving, all-caring deity make it clear to us? It is not. They have fought, over each, fought with each other over these issues. The Thirty Years' War, which was based to some degree on the confessional differences over infant baptism and transubstantiation, people were killed. John Calvin had his friend Servetus killed over a simple misplacement of a preposition. The lack of agreement among believers is a serious problem towards the existence of an all-loving, all-caring God. Okay, uh, this is another one that people on, on the internet have taken and run with. I don't know if they got how much uh, this is gleaned from people like Dan Barker, but th there's a couple of problems with this. First of all, guess what explains really well one of the reasons why there's so many differences among believers? Well, one of those things is free will. You understand, if there was to be perfect agreement among all believers, then that would require God to deterministically remove our free will and force us to all believe exactly the same thing. And you can't force someone to freely do something for obvious reasons. That's like your married bachelor problem, right? So if God wants to give man free will, and I believe that, uh, you know, the, the, I believe the Bible, and so the Bible tells us that God wants us to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you want real, genuine love, I would argue that you have to have real, genuine freedom. Um, and so God wants man to have free will. And so as a result of that, you're going to get differences because people exercise their free will in different ways and they come to different conclusions based on how, on what they choose uh, to study and what, how they choose to spend their lives and who they choose to listen to and all those kinds of things. So free will is an explanation for that. Another explanation for it is that perhaps God, now in some cases, like when we have people killing each other over disagreements and things like that, well, there you have an issue of sin. And guess what? That also goes back to free will. But in terms of mere theological differences, um, when they are not uh, an issue of obedience, where someone is just disobediently affirming a particular thing, but where people genuinely love the Lord and they have, among Orthodox Christians, genuine disagreements, I think that God uh, delights in our pursuit of knowledge. And, in, and, and, and there's something about, like, would you rather have people arguing over a sports team? Well, you probably would, you that are atheists out there, but should we be arguing over sports teams? Or should we be uh, having vigorous discussions about the nature of reality and, uh, and, and God and all of these kinds of things? I think that God delights in that. And frankly, I think there's a lot of you atheists out there who think that if you became Christians, you would just have to stick your nose in a hymnal and stick your nose in the Bible. And you, you, don't, you, you don't get to continue the pursuit of knowledge and the study of philosophy and all these kind of things and science and all that. Listen, there is a much, I won't say there's a richer, although I think there is, there's a rich debate among theologians and among philosophically minded Christians. Obviously, for 2,000 years, we've seen that highly academic. Uh, this is why it is that when you look back at the history of atheism until we had, you know, like YouTube atheists and things like that, which some of them are this way too, I'll, I'll grant them that, but the history of atheism, they appreciated, uh, philosophically trained atheists appreciated Christian thought and enjoyed uh, probing the theological questions, even though they didn't believe, because it is rich terrain for thought. And you can have that sort of an investigation if Christianity is true. And then so lastly, what I want to say about this is that uh, Dan Barker is again attempting to do divine psychology. Uh, divine When I say divine psychology, what I mean is, now notice how silly this sounds. And I, I'm not strawmanning him. He's telling us what would be the case if God existed and, and had something to do with the production of the Bible. Is there, there you know, that we that everyone would believe the same thing or God would want everyone to have exactly the same thoughts all the time and, and all that and would make it the case somehow, perhaps through determinism. I don't know, whatever he has in mind. This is divine psychology because what Dan Barker is doing is trying to tell you that he knows the mind of God and what God would do if God existed. 
He is telling you what the God that he doesn't believe exists. He knows this God that he doesn't believe exists better than the Christians do, so much so that he knows what that God that doesn't exist would do if that God exists. Now, do you see problems with that? Because I certainly do. So there are all kinds of problems with this, this issue. I, you know, Dillahunty always says, well, you, you want to find out how much Christians disagree, just go to Second Baptist Church. They differ from the people at First Baptist Church. The people at First Baptist, the people on the second row can tell you what's wrong with the beliefs of the people on the first row and all these kind of things. Let me tell you what it is that Christians have always agreed on. Orthodox believers have always agreed on for 2,000 years. And that is that, uh, that uh, God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead. All right? So... You know, if those two things are true, Christianity is true, period. And then, of course, the problem of evil. And um, our previous speaker uh, pointed out that that is probably the Achilles heel in theology. All you have to do is walk into any children's hospital, and you know there's no God, at least no good God. Maybe there's an evil God. Those children are dying at the same random rate even though their parents are desperately praying, desperately loving those kids, wanting some kind of divine intervention. And yet, as Ann Gaylor says, who's the, pres the former president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, nothing fails like prayer. That okay, I, I want to, there's two things going on here. One is the arguments from evil or the problem of evil, and the other is uh, whether prayer is effective. So I want to tackle both of those. Uh, first, with the arguments from evil, there are several ways that Christian thinkers have tried to answer arguments from evil because I think that Christians should take this issue seriously, and I think it's the best that atheists can do, frankly, is a good argument from evil. There are two kinds of arguments from evil. There are logical arguments from evil. Those are the ones like you get from Epicurus. Those are the ones that are uh, trying to show that it is not possible that you have both on the one hand, a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving, and on the other hand, some e you have evil. Uh, therefore, God, so defined, does not exist. Now, that's trying to make a stronger statement, but it's actually easier to defeat, because all you have to do is to sh give any explanation uh, to why God might be morally justified in allowing evil in spite of his being all-powerful and all-loving. And so we can come up with various ways to do that, and I'll tell you what they are in just a moment. But that's a philosophical defeater. You don't even actually know necessarily uh, what the correct answer is, but so long as you can imagine one that would uh, you know, answer the, the issue, then the statement that God so defined cannot exist fails. Um, that's a philosophical defeater. So, um, and then on the other hand, you have the 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 ones the the arguments from evil that are making a s more modest claim, but are more difficult to defeat. And that, those are what are called the evidential arguments from evil. There's a great compilation book called The Evidential Argument from Evil, and uh, you should you should read through that. It's got atheists and Christians uh, discussing it. It's it's not the newest book, but it's still relevant. Uh, you'll read a lot of atheists in there saying that they ditch the logical argument from evil, that this idea that God so defined cannot exist is a dead argument. It's just it's just dead in philosophy. Now, it's resurfacing again <laughs> among YouTube atheists, and so we have to respond to it, but it's dead in the water. The evidential argument is a little bit different. The evidential argument doesn't say God so defined cannot exist, but it's less likely that God exists given uh, gratuitous evil, evil that seems to serve no purpose. Now, there are uh, theodicies or... Uh, explanations of how God could be just in the midst of this that Christians have given. 
uh, with logical arguments from evil, they serve as defeaters. With evidential arguments, uh, you might put them more forcefully. But here's a spread, for example. I have a video on this that I'll link in the description. But uh, there is the character, character building theodicy. And that says that uh, God created a world that he knew would have pain and suffering in it because he knew that experiencing pain and suffering would build our moral character and integrity. And of course, the Bible does teach that in places like Romans chapter 5, that experiencing trials and tribulations do build our moral character and integrity. That's true. Uh, but that's not the whole story. Then there is the heaven theodicy that says, well, yeah, it's bad now. God created a world that he knew would have pain and suffering in it. But ultimately, this is all going to be a veil of tears. And it was birth pangs to glory. And in heaven, every tear is going to be wiped away from the believer's eye and all that sort of thing. And that is true that God's going to ultimately um, uh, glorify this world and we're going to we're going to see a different uh, picture and and God is going to wipe every tear from the believer's eye but that's not the whole picture either uh, there are some people that give what's called the reformed theodicy um, that God created a world that he knew would have evil in it and he's actually working in the midst of evil uh, to to bring about some good and uh, and those sorts of things and uh, there are elements of that that I agree I believe that he can use uh, evil and suffering that he didn't cause to bring about and redeem that evil to do some good thing uh, of course, uh, people that argue the Reformed theodicy a little bit more uh, straightforwardly, perhaps like John Piper, would, would say, no, 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 he is meticulously determining all things, including all evil things, because he has a plan uh, through that. Uh, I just think he can have a plan without himself being the cause of those evils or even a secondary cause of those evils. Uh, first, you know, they're brought about by secondary causes. I believe he can still, uh, we can be the cause of those things, and yet God can redeem that evil. Uh, but then there's the one that stands behind all of that, and that is the free will theodicy. Do you see how important uh, free will is to answering some of the objections, particularly raised by people like Dan Barker? Free will is just an important aspect, I think. And I realize that not every Christian apologist even affirms libertarian freedom. So many of them affirm determinism. But I find it to be just so important to uh, the work of the Christian apologists, and that's why I have my free will argument that I use. But um, but I think I think what we can say to this is that God created a world that He knew would have evil in it, but He wanted to give man libertarian freedom. And if you give man libertarian freedom, you can't force him to freely always do the right thing. Remember, because that would be a, a contradiction. Uh, so if if God's going to give man freedom, then he if he, he doesn't have to give man freedom, but if he does, he's got to allow that man to exercise freedom. And so you get moral evils, and I believe you also can account for natural disasters and disease and things like that through uh, moral, uh, through free will. And, and uh, you can study more of that if you want to by looking at my uh, a separate video on um, the, the, the problem of evil, the arguments from evil. And I, again, I'll link that in the description if I remember to. So um, this is a serious question, but it can be answered. And as far as gratuitous evils, that evils that seem to have no purpose or, or seem to benefit no one, and you can't redeem them, and there's no greater good that comes out of them. Uh, well, how would Dan Barker know that? How would William Rowe, the champion of that position, how would he know that? You know, it's kind of like my wife sends me to the uh, refrigerator and says, go get me a Diet Coke. I know that I put a Diet Coke in there, and I go look in the fridge, and I don't see a Diet Coke, and I come back and I say, there's no Diet Coke in there. And she says, I know there's a Diet Coke in there. Go back and look again. So I go back and I look again, and I, I move and stuff around. I still don't see the Diet Coke. Uh, I go back, there's no Diet Coke. She says, I know there's Diet Coke. Just go in there and look harder. So I go and I look, and I start sweating, and I have to stop and take a break, and I'm drinking milk, and I'm, I'm really getting worn out with this, and I come back and I say, I, I, I don't know. There's no Diet Coke. And she says, do I have to come and get the Diet Coke myself? And I said, yeah, I'd like to see you come and show me that Diet Coke. And then she goes over to the refrigerator, opens the refrigerator, and reaches in and grabs Diet Coke like it was there all the time. And it was there all the time. Well, what's the explanation for that? It's that even though I may not see the Diet Coke, it was still there. And that's in the limited frame of a refrigerator, right? And a lot of people, I think, can relate with my story there. In the same way, 
how can Dan Barker expect to know? How can he expect to see the goods that may come out of certain things that seem like gratuitous evil? One of William Rowe's examples is uh, you can imagine a girl who his, the father comes home and he uh, kills some, kills the wife, kills the, the little girl and kills himself. And there's no good that ever comes out of this. Or a tree falls on uh, a fawn in the woods and catches on fire and the fawn dies and burns up. So there's not even anything for the, you know, to the you know uh, insects to eat or anything like that and there's no good that it's just a gratuitous evil why didn't god at least stop that he would have well hold on a second how do you know what the butterfly effect 100 years after those events is going to be as a result of those events you can't know what those things are going to be you would have to be god to know those things and you're not god dan barker's not god and uh, even though he thinks he knows the mind of god on a lot of these things so the discussion of the arguments from evil is an interesting one but it's one that christians have i think very plausible explanations for it's certainly not uh, something that is a slam dunk. Although, as I say every time, if you're dealing with someone who is experiencing a problem, uh, a, a serious uh, issue, um, we can answer the uh, intellectual problem of evil really well. What we have to be more careful with, and we don't necessarily have a good answer for, is the emotional problem of suffering. When a person has lost a loved one or lost a child or has been diagnosed with some terminal illness, um, it may not be the best thing to give them these cold clinical explanations. That's why we should do it in videos like this in a cool moment so that it's already there when you experience those times in your life. Because as someone once said, you're either coming out of a storm or going into a storm or something like that. You know, you're, you're going to have suffering in the future. Um, and so for that reason, we need to be prepared and know these things ahead of time. But in the midst of someone's pain and suffering, the most important thing might not be to give them these sorts of answers, but to just love them and to just hug them and to listen to them and help them in any way that they need to be helped. Uh, so, uh, but we have answers to these sorts of things. That would be evidence. If you could give some scientific evidence that prayer actually makes an organic difference, not just makes you feel better, but an actual difference in the real world, that would be something to put on the table. The fact that... So let's put it on the table then. Um, yeah, prayer. So does prayer work? Uh, uh, this is another one that Matt Dillahunty always loves to champion, the idea that prayer just never works. But uh, so let me let me write let me read you something that I wrote sometime back. So uh, let me let me give you some an example here. I, I haven't personally studied this to, at any great length, as it isn't really related to my the typical case that I bring. Um, but there are a number of studies, and a quick review of Wikipedia will reveal that there's a debate about this issue. Dr. Rand, Randolph Bird was published in Southern Medical Journal on his study of the effectiveness of prayer. He concluded that those subjects who were prayed for had, quote, less congestive heart failure, required less diuretic uh, and antibiotic therapy, and had fewer episodes of pneumonia, and had fewer cardiac arrests, and were less frequently intubated or ventilated. Um, Dr. Harold D. Koenig described the state of research thusly, quote, out of 125 studies that looked at the link between health and regular worship, 85 showed regular churchgoers live longer. There's a lot of evidence out there. So uh, this, you know, people say this sort of thing with glib certainty uh, because they heard about a couple of studies or something, but there actually is good reason to believe that prayer uh, works. But another thing is the Bible actually gives you parameters on how to pray effectively. You're to pray in, in the name of Jesus. Now that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you just add in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer and God has to answer it. That's how a lot of atheists characterize it. But no, you pray for the sorts of things that uh, are in line with the person that you're praying in his name. You're praying in his name because you want to pray something that you think that is the sort of thing that he would be on board with and would honor. Uh, you're also to pray according to God's will. If, if you're praying for something that's out of God's will, there's no guarantee that you're going to get that prayer answered. <coughs> you're also not to be just be praying for selfish motives. Um, and and uh, so so a lot of these things, if, if, you're, if these prayer studies 
don't follow the biblical parameters, and they usually don't because in many cases these prayer studies are focused on just prayer in general from a a variety of religious backgrounds. But if you're wanting to study Christian prayer and you're not studying them based on the biblical statements about prayer, which they almost never are, then guess what? Uh, That's poor research. Uh, Forget whether God exists or anything else. That's just poor research because if what you're studying is whether Christian prayer works, then you need to study what prayer is biblically and how it should be done. So, uh, you know, th- this doesn't go anywhere. The fact that that's not put on the table shows that prayer is pretty much talking to yourself. Finally, there's no need for a belief in God. Millions, tens of millions of people on this planet live happy lives, productive lives, moral lives, purposeful lives, lives of hope and meaning without deluding ourselves that there are these invisible personalities populating some supernatural realm. Okay, we had literal hand-waving there, and that was just chest-thumping again, that was just mockery. Uh, but uh, there, he actually said a lot more than you might realize in what he just said. He said, so uh, we don't need God, God's not needed. Well, uh, why is he needed? Well, because we can live happy lives, purposeful lives, meaningful lives, moral lives. Okay, well, what's your grounding for that morality? I agree with you that atheists can live moral lives from a human perspective, but what is the grounding for that morality? The atheists that, uh, that the academic atheists are willing to say it's morality is ultimately subjective, right? So there's, it's, there is no ultimate morality. It's just, um, it's just uh, decided upon, you know, it's based on our evolution or something like that, or cultural conditioning or what we think is best for human flourishing or whatever the case may be. Uh, but th- there is no morality qua morality. It's, it's subjective. It's a matter of opinion. It may be the opinion of a, a majority of people, but it's still a matter of opinion. So uh, you can live a moral life, but you have no explanation for that morality. Uh, purpose? Uh, yeah, you can decide a purpose for yourself, but that doesn't mean that there is some ultimate purpose. There's not really a purpose. and Everything's going to be wiped away one day in a heat death if you're right. So, uh, you know, you don't have a good explanation for that. Um, uh, what was the other thing? Happy, you can live a happy life. Okay, but who says that happiness is is the goal? That, that assumes that happiness is like the goal that we should be striving toward. Who says that human happiness is the goal that we should be striving for? Um, that may sound audacious to you, but I don't necessarily grant that. So if there is a God, uh, then you need him because he's the one who tells you what your purpose is. He is the grounding for your morality. In fact, you need him for that morality already. Um, uh, ultimately, there will be uh, happiness forever in him. But if he exists, then happiness is not the ultimate goal that we're after. Uh, so, do you need God? Well, that's kind of a that kind of assumes a lot of baggage, and we could do at least three more videos on meaning and purpose and morality and things like that. So, I won't go into great detail about that here, except to say that he's assuming a lot right there. If God exists, and if there really is uh, a coming judgment and things like that, then you darn well better believe you need God. Yeah, I said it. Uh, yeah, I say it again. Uh, I don't think that hell is the best reason to be a Christian, but it's a darn good reason. We are quite happy, thank you, without that belief. Based on all of that, it is more likely to reject the Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, I know he's giving a summary statement about all the things he's just said, but he said we're quite happy without that belief. So based on that, we're quite reasonable to believe whatever. Hold on. Your personal happiness should, what makes you most happy to believe should not be one of the things that is your basis for what you're going to believe. We should want to be free thinkers. And we should want to ascribe to truth. Now, so what you've gotten from him is some comments about free will. Uh, ultimately, I know from uh, from other videos, I don't think that uh, that uh, Dan Barker affirms 
libertarian freedom. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but if he doesn't, he literally cannot be a free thinker because even his thoughts and beliefs are determined. Uh, he said that we should listen to the scientists. Uh, so that doesn't sound very much like a free thinker. You're cutting off uh, two or three other great ways of discovering knowledge. He is following a poor understanding of what faith means to thoughtful believers. Uh, he's said that we're following a God of the gaps. When we're not following a God of the gaps, he's misunderstood the arguments. Um, he's, uh, let's see, what else, what else did he do? Oh, he's got, uh, he's offered a, a part of an alternative explanation for the resurrection that fails right on the face of it. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot that's going wrong with this discussion. Now, again, uh, I like Dan Barker as a person. Uh, maybe one day I'll get to debate him. I'd enjoy that. And if so, I've given him a lot to work with here in this video if he wants to prepare for that debate. Um, but um, ultimately, I would say that as much as I like Dan Barker as a person, I am unimpressed with Dan Barker's case against God. And if you are likewise unimpressed, maybe give a thumbs up to the video and perhaps give a hashtag unimpressed on Twitter and in the YouTube comments. If you're not a subscriber, I'd love to see you as a subscriber. If you don't know Jesus, I'd love to see you come to know Jesus. You can come to know Jesus by uh, trusting, that's faith, Pistis, trusting, uh, placing your trust and faith in Jesus. That's not blind faith. We're trusting that he'll do for us in the future what he said he would do based on what there's good reason to believe he's done in the past and repenting. That is a biblical term that means to turn. To turn from what? To turn from your life without Jesus to a life with Jesus. To turn from your sin. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person from a human perspective, but we're all sinners and in need of a savior. And there is a coming judgment, and so you need to turn from that life without Jesus to uh, this, uh, to Jesus who can serve as um, your mediator and uh, who can answer for you because you can't answer for yourself. You don't want to. You don't want to answer for yourself. Uh, if you'd like to talk more about that, I think that uh, an appropriate thing to do is to pray and tell God that that's what's on your heart. And if you do that, or if you want to talk more about it, then contact me. I'd love to help you with that. So I've enjoyed this, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Trinity Radio.